If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. In today's episode, we're bringing you security expert and Chatham House Research Director Patricia Lewis. She's going to be revealing the silent dangers that lie in space. Are we ignoring the risks of terror attacks on satellites? Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk about the security of outer space and particularly the satellites that we have up there and what it means for our normal daily lives and a new threat that we have. In the past, we were only thinking really about satellites accidentally crashing into each other or being hit by rockets with what are called anti-satellite weapons, which created enormous amounts of debris. But we're now worrying about a different kind of much more silent but deadly threat which is using cyber attacks on satellites. We are increasingly dependent on space for almost everything we do. Much of our critical infrastructure, that's things like our transport, our energy, our financial transactions, shipping, environmental monitoring, our defence systems, all depend on the space infrastructure. There are about 4,000 satellites up there. A lot of them aren't on. They're not working, they're old, they're dead, or they're switched off for some reason. There's about, there's over a thousand which are actually uh, really active right now. And most of those are commercial, and some are military. But even the commercial ones have military functions. And increasingly, we have new civil operated satellites going up there that belong to universities, that belong to the UN, that belong to individuals, and some of them are this small. This is a whole new area for economic activity. It's very exciting. People love the idea of having their own satellites. They can add them into launches at very low cost. Uh, you can pop them up for a short period of time, for example, to monitor animal movements, human uh, refugee flows, water, other environmental uh, things you can use it for communications in a short period of time. So there's increasing access, increasing interest in the civil sector in providing assets and space. However, almost none of those 
have any cyber security. So this is an example of um, the type of satellite that's going up there now. And I wanted to look at these sorts of satellites because this is where I see some of our most vulnerable areas. You have a mobile phone, and on your mobile phone you probably have Google Maps or something equivalent, and you can find your way around Hay, around your other place, anywhere you want to go in the world, using, at the moment, global positioning system data. It's called GNSS data, which is global navigation um, satellite data, system data. And it provides three pieces of information. It provides position, it provides navigational data and where you want to go, and it provides timing data. And this information is used in almost everything now. Uh, in our financial transactions, the timing of our financial transactions uses PNT, Positional Navigational Timing Data, from these satellites. Um, you know, go and use our debit card in the machine. We're using that global positioning data. When we are uh, buying our tickets online, when we're buying our tickets in the machines in uh, the train stations, we're using that data. Some of us have now uh, water boilers at home for our heating that uses global positioning data because you are now using your iPhone to control them, to tell them when to switch on and when to switch off. This is part of what will become the Internet of Things. Uh, we are now having, you've probably seen the adverts, you can switch off your iron, you can switch off your toaster or using your iPhone or your equivalent uh, smartphone, I should say. Um, and you we're all being connected, the sensors, the interconnectivity going through the internet is now meaning that we're all connected, but it's all relying on this position, navigation and timing data. This data is embedded now in almost all electronics that are being produced, all the receptors for this data. So satellites are essentially big digital platforms in the sky or small digital platforms in the sky. But if you think about the whole network of satellites, it's one digital network. The information is going up, the information is coming down, and it's helping us make sense of our world, it's helping us predict, it's helping keep us safe, it's really important. It's helping us navigate, it's helping us do almost everything we want to do. But, because of that, we're vulnerable to a number of things about it. We're vulnerable to its integrity, is it telling us what we really think it's telling us? Is it true? Uh, we're vulnerable to being on or off. What do we have if it's not there? What will work if it's not there? And um, we are vulnerable to it being hacked. We're vulnerable to it being interfered with. So these are now some of the big concerns that a number of the large countries that have space-based assets out there, and the UK is increasingly one of those, the United States and Russia are the two that have the most satellites up there, but countries such as India, China, Japan, uh, a number of uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, Europe, European Union has its own set of uh, satellites, I showed that earlier. These are all now major space players. And when they were designing these satellites, which take many, many years to design and build and be tested and then launched, they weren't thinking about cybersecurity at all. Cybersecurity wasn't a feature. And it probably wasn't a feature in most of the comp components that they were buying in when they were buying in rather than building them. 
So almost all of the satellites that are up there, be they military or civilian, have very little cyber protection. <clears throat> so cyber vulnerabilities in our space-based infrastructure have serious risks for the ground-based critical infrastructure in our countries, regionally, and nationally. For example, we look at our energy distribution. That requires on the timing data, fundamentally. Our financial distribution requires the, the timing data, positional data to work perfectly. Our maritime, our shipping, requires navigational data, timing data to work. All of the electronics that we're using requires this. So any interference with it, any switching it off, is a real problem. And a lot of people think that what they're doing is not connected to the internet or is not connected in any way to the outside. They think they're air-gapped. So, for example, uh, we recently produced a report at cyber vulnerabilities of the nuclear industry. Many nuclear operators think that they're completely air-gapped, that they're not connected in any way to the outside world, that their systems that are running the nuclear plants are standalone systems. Many of them think that because they're old bespoke systems, that that means they're also similarly invulnerable because they're not subject to the sort of viruses that are coming in through the internet. So if you walk into one of those stations and you put a jammer, an ordinary signal jammer on, almost all of those electronics would just die. That tells you that you're connected, okay? Also, as you well know, if you think you're not connected, that's probably the bit where you're most vulnerable. The moment you think you're secure in this world is the, thing, is the moment that you are perhaps the most vulnerable. That's my bit of philosophy thrown out to you. If you imagine that you have a computer-based system that is not connected, for example, I heard recently that in a um, power station, not a nuclear power station, um, they had made this, the assertion to inspectors that they were not connected, and they didn't realize their vending machine was connected to the internet. Their vending machine was connected to another control system, which was then connected to their bigger control system. People don't understand often the connections that exist uh, without, throughout the systems that they have, and they don't realize that the point of vulnerability is the point where uh, they haven't thought about and where they might get an attack. And it, they, these uh, viruses or these bits of programs that can interfere with the other programs can come in through all sorts of strange and interesting routes. And there are people out there who have set up programs to just automatically scan for the points of connection and the points of vulnerability. So this is all being done now automatically and digitally. So it's not like just somebody sitting at a computer, you know, being clever. The, the cleverness was when they sat at a computer earlier and designed the scan program. So this is going on all the time now. So if you have a vulnerability, if you are connected, you're not safe. But that's good, because we can't be safe. Next slide, please. <clears throat> we also have enormous military reliance on satellite technologies uh, for our intelligence gathering, navigation, targeting, communications. And so within the military infrastructure, cyber vulnerabilities are a major concern. Command and control systems for the nuclear missile program, for example, command and control systems for conventional forces. Now, luckily, in 2013, so all of three years ago, 
the US Department of Defense identified that this was a major problem. They identified some 13 points of vulnerability in the command and control system, and they've been working ever since to uh, fix that. We can hope that other countries, particularly those in alliance with the United States, who aren't as transparent and don't talk about these things as much, uh, can also be doing the same thing. But we can also, I think, be concerned that there will be some states who think it isn't a problem still, who don't know it's a problem. For example, when we were doing this work on the nuclear industry last year, we were really shocked as how many, how many people in the nuclear industry thought this wasn't a problem. That has changed, by the way, since we did the research, thank goodness. So they're now on the case. But that's, it's 2016, and we've been worrying about this now for a few decades. So there are some industries that are ahead of the curve. You'll be pleased to know the aviation industry is one of them. Uh, they've been worrying about this for a long time. Um, and they've been doing things to fix it and try to get on top of it for a long time. But the maritime industry is way behind the curve. The nuclear industry has been as well. And there are a number of others. It's very variable. The financial sector is obviously way on top of it because they have been subject to the most of the attacks. Now, there are two types of cyber attacks that we need to think about. <clears throat> one is the one that you're probably most familiar with, which is essentially the taking of information from databases. So things like your names and addresses, your bank account details, your PIN numbers, your passwords, all of those things that you're told about in the newspapers every day. But there's another one that worries me a lot, and that is the actual taking of control of industrial control systems. And Stuxnet as, a, as a, a virus was designed to interfere with a particular control system on a particular piece of machinery. And it was a bit of luck whether it made its way in. And it's made, we think it made its way in through a memory stick. Somebody, you know, one lapse, that's all you need, one lapse, an insider person, getting a bit fed up with the useless uh, computer system that they have there and can't, you know, do his or her emails or, you know, watch what they want to watch and putting in their own memory stick. And it happens all the time. We're told at work not to do that. Some of us aren't even told that. We're told at work not to you know, put in lousy passwords and so on, and we breach those all the time. This is human behavior. So human behavior is really important in this. So somebody did that. They infected the whole of the centrifuge program. These uh, Siemens uh, technologies were then interrupted by the virus, and uh, a lot of the centrifuge program shut down. Now, one of the things that you also know, I'm sure, is that people have, because it's spread everywhere, people have got this virus now, and they are reverse engineering it. And they're playing with it. Um, and there are lots of things you can do with these types of viruses. So for example, if you got them into a nuclear power station, you could shut down uh, the coolant uh, um, circuit, for example. You could also use it to open and shut doors. You can use it to turn on and off lights. There's all sorts of things you could do. And you could test it that way as well if you were being really, really clever. Um, so we could also do that with satellites. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month 
and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. If you go to the next slide, please. <coughs> so one of the things that we're really worried about with satellites is the amount of debris that's in the sky. I mentioned a large number of satellites that are just not operating. So why aren't they down? Well, they're not down because they're up there and then they stay up there. To bring them down would require um, quite a lot of energy and all sorts of clever maneuverability that they weren't fitted out with in the first place. So the idea is that when they died a natural death, they would just sit there. Unfortunately, just sitting there means that no, nothing else can sit there. Right? They're, they're taking up that space. So they are just sitting up there as debris. Now, I'm sure everyone saw the film Gravity, so you've got some idea of what happens when satellites collide, or what happens when a small piece that's broken off something collides into a satellite, or when a rocket hits a satellite, as we've seen on a few occasions through what's called anti-satellite weapons testing, and you create this enormous amount of debris. These are tiny particles, some of them are very big particles, and we can watch those and track them, and you can see them coming, and um, you can, if you're on the space station, you can kind of dodge out of the way, as has happened on occasions. Um, it's extremely dangerous. A particle this size, or even smaller, can do enormous damage, for example, to the solar panels of a, of a, a functioning satellite. So creating debris is something we try to avoid. But if you were in a conflict, if you were in a war, and you were at war with a country that was using its satellites to be able to direct hits against you, you might want to destroy those satellites. In the past, the only way you could do it would be to send up a rocket to explode near or at that satellite. Now, you might be able to do it using cyber technology by taking control of the satellite and crashing it into another satellite, for example. Taking control of your own satellite, or taking control of another person's satellite. You could also just turn, if you're really clever, you can just turn the solar panels to the sun and fry them. It's called grilling. Right? There's all sorts of clever things you can do that would just switch them off. That's benign, if you like. You can also create a huge amount of debris and, and, and chaos up there, which would then damage everyone's satellites. And that might be in your interest to do that if you're in a conflict. So that's something we're really concerned about. You'd also create enormous amounts of debris, much of which would never come back down to Earth, would just sit there, at least for decades, maybe hundreds of years. So taking control of satellites can be done in various ways. The most likely place is at the ground station. So we have on the ground um, all sorts of stations around the place that connect to the satellites, uploading and downloading information. If these are military ground stations, they're fairly well guarded and well looked after. If they are civilian, some of them have absolutely no personnel on them at all. They're automated. So they, again, are quite vulnerable. You can go in physically or you can go in digitally into these ground stations. So you could use um, backdoor technologies into the uh, computers on board satellites through these ground stations and take control of the satellite. And this has happened. Um, we've had attacks now, They've, again the US, we often use US um, examples because the US publishes things. We assume that the US is not alone in these attacks that other 
countries and other satellite systems are also being attacked, it's just that they don't tell you about it. The US tends to be the prime example of everything and everyone gets really worried about the US, but mostly it's because the US is the most transparent of all the countries. Um, so it seems a bit unfair, the more transparency you are, the more <laughs> notice you get and the more blame you often get. But certainly um, we've had a number of attacks now which have demonstrated that other countries have the ability to, to control US satellites. Russia accused Ukraine of taking control of one of its communication satellites recently. Uh, we've had a major interference with US weather satellites. Now you might think weather satellites, eh, okay. That's annoying, we need to know the weather, but you know, shutting down a weather satellite, that's not so bad. But actually, the weather satellites of the United States are part of the Strategic Missile Program. They provide information on the weather conditions for missile launchers, for example. They also provide that information for targeting, for seeing what the weather is like at a target. Now, you might think that's a good thing then to switch them off, but it may be but it may not be, and what it's doing is increasing the uncertainty of the whole strategic defence systems that we have around the world. That may be a good thing. It may force us and confront us to think about these things a bit differently. Uncertainty is not a bad thing. Not knowing about it is definitely a bad thing. Not understanding it and not understanding uncertainties is definitely a bad thing. Right, so here comes my little pet worry. It's not so little and it is very worrying. This information that's coming up and down, so if, if we shoot down a satellite, or if we interfere with the satellite, if we turn it off, if we smash it to another, we can tell that's happened, okay? It's not good, but we know it's happened. If we jam a satellite, or we jam the signals, the signals go off. We know that's happened. That happens to you all the time when you're watching through your satellite connections, right? That just goes off, you have an interference, and it goes off and you're unable to watch the TV. So you know it's happened. And North Korea, for example, regularly attacks, jamming attacks. Iran has regularly jammed BBC transmissions. This is normal behavior. But spoofing, that's really interesting. Spoofing or manipulating data is when you substitute the data that's coming in with another set of data. Now, if you do it so that it's way off, that's obvious. But what if you do it so it's very subtle? So what if you do it with a navigational or timing thing that's very subtle? Can you imagine if you slightly adjusted the timing in a financial transaction, what you could do in that space? It may have happened already. Can you imagine what would you do if you slightly altered the navigational systems on an aircraft or a missile or a boat? Fishermen are doing this already, by the way, people fishing that are not allowed to fish in certain waters are making it look like they're here when they're actually here. They're doing it the other way. If you combine these, you can completely take down the power grid, you could destroy the financial services, you could turn off almost every power station you wanted to, nuclear or otherwise, you can have a lot of fun. Next slide, please. <coughs> so the main vulnerable points are ground stations, uplinks and downlinks, the insecure supply um, chain technologies, supply chain technologies, so that's everything you buy that's not cyber protected and that have back doors, which is just about everything you buy. And the uh, global navigation uh, system data that uh, we use all the time. 
the good news is that we're not going to be completely reliant on the global positioning system, the American one. Um, there is a redundant. There is going to be extra um, resilience in that the uh, European Galileo system is going to provide a lot of the data, and it's slightly different, and it uses a different timing system, and it uses a different channels, so that increases the resilience, but they're all vulnerable. Okay, so what can we do? We can either give everything up to the security service and say, okay, you take care of it and control it just like you do with missiles and so on. I think that just isn't going to happen. Space is too important for ordinary people. It's too important for businesses. It's really important for, for example, telecommunications, um, all of our um, television that's beamed across the world. That's what we use it for. A lot of what we do on the internet can be done through underground cable, but there's still things for space such as environmental monitoring, monitoring of crops, monitoring of water flows that we can't do really well any other way. So I think we need space to be accessible for everyone. But cybersecurity increases the cost, and that's very difficult for commercial companies, for universities, for individuals who are trying to put satellites up there. So how do we create a level playing field for everyone? And some suggestions is that we go through the UN. There's a body in Vienna that looks at all of this stuff for the, for the wider, in the wider way. There's a body in Geneva that doesn't look at it. It should be. Um, do we need laws? <coughs> do we need regulations? How do we do that? Do we want an approach that is still innovative, that is still free, that still allows people the access? Or do we increase the costs and deny people the access? Next slide. <coughs> so I think in the end, I'm going to get down to this. Insurance is a huge part of the space industry. Um, there are specialist providers for the insurance of launches. And they're very high cost because <coughs> launches often go wrong. And most of the insurance is in that part of the space network. So once they get up into space, Obviously, there's some insurance in case they don't work. We've seen that in, in a few cases, but for the most part, it's at the launch where they're most vulnerable. Um, and those launches, if you've got a small little CubeSat or you've got your own little satellites, they will sit as a sort of piggyback ride on those launches, and you don't pay very much in, for that launch. And that's how universities, that's how a lot of schools and so on can get their little satellites up there to do their scientific work. But what if insurance required the cybersecurity as well as the launch insurance? What if it required that each of those was protected against cyber attacks in the best way they possibly could and could be maintained in that way? And they made it a level playing field for everybody. It seems to me that that would at least then create a situation where the supply chain would have to create the electronics that were then best cyber protected for everybody to be able to use. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.